Um, we're going to continue our teaching series now, um, and, and we've been talking about something called ancient pathways. And uh, this idea is that we are shaped and formed to become more like Jesus through traveling down a pathway that leads us closer to Jesus. And we've identified what some of these different pathways are. Today, we're going to talk about the pathway of interdependence. Now, on December 27th, my family and I drove right into the middle of a storm. Now, that is not proverbial, that's not a metaphor, a figure of speech. We literally drove right into a storm. And uh, we should have probably known that it was going on, but I guess you gotta watch the news or something like that to know these things are coming. And so we were halfway down the 26, we put in the address, we're headed to Rockaway Beach, and uh, we're gonna go visit some friends, stay in their little beach shack, and we're super excited. But um, halfway down Highway 26, we find out that one of the highways is blocked off due to high winds and trees falling down. Okay, well, I guess we'll just divert the other way and we'll go the other way. And I have to say, I've driven in a lot of adverse situations I've been in developing nations where the government just decides to flip off the power grid while you're in the middle of like a 15-car intersection and you just grab the steering wheel and hope to God you make it, right? This was up there as one of those most intense situations because when you see a 100-foot tree swaying like this in the wind, you're kind of going, ah, Jesus, please help us make it. So we drive and we do survive. And I don't say that lightly. This was actually a really traumatic storm that actually did affect real human beings' lives. But we made it into Tillamook only to find that there wasn't a light on to be found. Now, I have four little kids, four little human beings, and we're going on a vacation, right? So we pull into Tillamook, and first thing, disappointment, no creamery, right? It's shut down. But then on top of that, Fred Myers, the store, shut down. And all of a sudden, panic starts to grip me because we did not come prepared for this storm, right? We don't have enough food. We don't have enough firewood, because apparently now we really are going to need that. So we landed in the city, and for two days, we were without power and without the normal conveniences of life. I told my kids they'd never forget it. And they won't. I promise you, they won't. Now, one of the things that I became keenly aware of on this little family trip, notice I don't call it a vacation, because when you have kids, they're trips, not vacations, right? Was um, how interconnected we are as human beings. Someone someplace produces power, and it runs down conduits and power lines that somebody installed at one point and maintain so that I can go to a grocery store that somebody has stocked and somebody works there so that I can purchase food, right? That's just one of the thousands of examples. Like you got here this morning because you got in a vehicle that somebody else made, not you. If you made your own car, find me afterwards. That would be awesome. But... Um, and you put gasoline in it that someone else refined and somebody else got the crude oil in the first place and then somebody else shipped it to that place unless you have an electric vehicle. Then you plugged it in, right, whatever. Um, either way, you depended on someone else, someplace else that you have never met and you will never meet to help you get to where you are right now. And that's what I became keenly aware of as I was waiting for someone to show up and turn the power back on, right? Our lives are interconnected. Human beings gravitate towards each other. It's like the gravity that just pulls us in, right? There's a reality that we actually need each other for civilization. We need each other to thrive, to grow, to be well, to experience the conveniences of life, all of that. 
Now, that being said, we also know that even though we gravitate towards each other, we don't always get along. What a conundrum, right? We need each other, that's how we thrive, and yet as we pull together, it is also how we hurt and wound one another. Now, the Bible is not a mute to this. It's not unaware of this tension that we experience. While we are interconnected, what the Bible introduces us to is an idea beyond us just being connected in our shared humanity and moving us towards an idea which is called interdependence. Now, here's the definition of interdependence we're going to work from today. It's going to pop up on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. Just remember the gist of it. You don't have to remember it word for word, but here's the idea. Two people involved in each other's lives in a meaningful way with mutual dependence that requires vulnerability, trust, and common sharing of each other's lives. It takes work, sacrifice, and the grace and love of God to flow into you, through you, and to one another. It's hard. And it is good. (laughs) How many phrases in life could be summed up as, it's hard, but it is good, right? We're talking about ancient pathways that shape and form you to become more like Jesus. The pathway of interdependence may be one of the most ancient pathways. Now, in order to begin to even understand what interdependence is, how it works out in our life, why it's essential, we have to go back as far as we possibly can because what's more ancient than Genesis 1, the very beginning of the human story. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there with me? Genesis 1, turn it on, Genesis 1. Um, if, If you don't have a Bible or if you're new to the Bible, good news, Genesis means beginnings and it is the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 1. And we're literally looking at verse one. Um, In the next uh, hour, we're going to cover the whole Bible, so strap, and just kidding, it's not going to be an hour. Um, (laughs) But uh, we are going to look at the beginning, and there's a reason why. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, in the beginning, there was chaos and darkness, but then God speaks, and light extinguishes darkness. Chaos is replaced by order, purpose, and meaning, and a world once void of life is teeming with hope and possibility. This is the first thing we learn about God in the Bible. And here's the good news. Are you ready? he is still in the business of putting broken things back together again. After all, that is the story of God, putting broken creation, broken people back together the way he intended. How did he intend? That's important. You know, on my way home, I drive past a house and there's a boat on a trailer in the front yard. Now, it's clear the boat has been there for a long time because there's grass growing on the boat. (laughs) Now, grass is supposed to grow in a lot of places, but I tell you, fiberglass is not the greatest environment to grow grass. Now, not trying to make fun of the boat or the person who has a boat, but here's my point. The boat will never reach its potential in the front yard because it wasn't created to be in the front yard. The person who created the boat intended the boat to be where? In water. It will never experience its intended purpose in a front yard. My refrigerator, I promise you, it would make a great paperweight. 
Like if I put my refrigerator on top of a piece of paper, that paper is not going anywhere, right? But it's not what it was designed for. The refrigerator may function as a paperweight, but it was designed to refrigerate my food. It was designed to keep a drink cold, right? It can exist and function in a way it wasn't intended to, but its intention is so much greater. Are you following me? God designed you human being. He knows the best way you function. And he wants you to live according to your intention. Now, at the apex of God's creative work, he makes humanity. All of this ordering of humanity, but on day six, he brings to life the human being. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. So God puts humanity in the world, the beautiful, perfect world that he creates. He gives them charge and leadership and power. He delegates his authority. He calls them kings and queens over creation. We find that we were created to be fully dependent on God. We find that we were created to reflect who God is to the world around us. Bonus points. God is a one God in three persons who exists in a perfect interdependence of himself. Did I just blow your mind? Put that one away for later. He creates us as human beings to exist with an interdependence of each other. That is what it means to reflect who God is to the world. But in addition to that, he makes us interdependent on creation. Creation needs us to steward it, to move it forward, for it to reach its potential, and vice versa, we need it to survive. So this is the world God creates, dependent fully on him and interdependent on one another. Now, verse 31, then God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I love running the Bible through um, modern like word, like uh, uh, spell check, grammarly. It's like, hey, the Bible, th this section has used the word good too many times. Maybe you should instead use the word delicious, right? So God saw all that he made and it was very delicious, now, God's, the thing is, is the Hebrew people and the language is much more complex and not as dense as English. When you find repetition in the Bible, it's a device to bring your attention to something. So over and over and over again, we read, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And once he reaches the apex of his creation, he says it is very good. But what Genesis 2 does is, if Genesis 1 is this massive overview of why God created and the beauty and the order to it, Genesis 2 zooms in on the apex of that creation, humanity, and gives us a bird's eye view of what actually happens. And it's right in the midst of that that God intentionally creates something and says it is not good. Now it's important to note he doesn't create something morally bad or wrong 
or evil, but he leaves something out as a teaching point for us to understand. Genesis chapter two, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. So imagine the scene. God puts Adam in a garden of Eden, which the word literally means delight. And he presents in front of him all the living creatures that exist on the earth. And it's Adam's job to name them. Now, when I think about the scene, this is how I envision it. Adam must have had a piping hot cup of coffee because it wouldn't be the garden of delight without coffee. Am I right? And I'm imagining that like as soon as that, you know, caffeine hits his system and his adrenaline spikes, the creative juices are moving and he's like, that's a hippopotamus, a rhinoceros, right? A kangaroo. He starts naming these really complex names, but he must have gotten tired because then he's like, that's a rat. That's a bat. That's a cat. That's a gnat, <laughs> right? I know. I mean, I know he didn't create in English, but you know what I'm saying, right? But in all seriousness, he is presented with all of the living aspects of creation, but none of them are the companion he is looking for. Sorry, dog and cat people. <laughs> Until this. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam meets Eve and he connects with a, a human being for the first time and he comes alive. And what we have is the first poetry in human history because sometimes that's the only proper way to respond when you can't quite find the words to say it. Now, I wish we talked about this more because God has always been and will always be the most pro-women activist in the universe, right? Get this for traditional, okay? Woman, from the side of man. Rib, the idea is from the side. Hebrews were big on word pictures when they used words. It was supposed to evoke something that came from the side. Not in front and not behind, but side by side. This is the creation of male and female. The idea that these two are to be companions, co-equal, different, but together moving through life. Right, suitable helper. It's Gosh, it's a terrible English translation of a word called, that is so powerful. It's a Hebrew word called azer. And azer is a powerful word. It's a warrior world, word. You know that it is used most often in the Bible as a title for God himself. When God comes into the story to rescue Israel as their enemies are surrounding them and they feel like they have no hope, the azer God arrives and delivers Israel from their hurt. 
right? So it's not like an accident that they use this really incredible word, a title used for God to describe the role, the purpose of woman coming alongside of man. It's not to be chief cup bearer and baker and laundromat person and, you know, you hear what I'm saying? It has been wrongly misused in our society. The real idea brings honor and dignity to the woman, and it begins to define the human-to-human -human connection that's important and valuable. I remember teaching this theology at a marriage thing, and some of the people raised their hand, and they were like, hey, but that's just not how corporate America works. Someone's always in charge. And I thought, well, it's a good thing corporate America, like the Bible was created long before corporate America, right? Yes, it's hard and it's challenging and it's different than any other thing that the world presents itself. But what we see here truly is the very first picture of interdependence. Two people bringing their differences together in unity and moving forward and in doing so, showing the world what God is like. Now, we read naked and unashamed, and in a hypersexualized culture, we instantly go there. And hear me, God created it, and he said it, it was good, and he told them to mature, to multiply, right? So that is definitely there, but what it symbolizes is actually something much deeper. It symbolizes that these two very different people, in their vulnerabilities and even weaknesses, were safe with one another. That there was nothing hidden and nothing to be ashamed of by each other. That is what interdependence looks like. Why should we start there? Well, C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, and if you haven't read it, you should. It's a fictional work of two um, devils writing to each other about how to tempt human beings. But he writes this, and, he, and it's one devil writing to another. It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds, when in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Think, man, they're putting that bad thought in my mind. But oftentimes, the best work of the enemy is not allowing the good and the beautiful and the true to come in. And what is good and beautiful, true? That God created this as the picture for human relationships and flourishing. Let that into your mind, and it's incredible how God, the truth of God, changes things. Now, speaking of Lewis, in that same book, he writes this. He, speaking of God, and again, these are devils writing, so they're not big fans of God, is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. We're only like foam on the seashore, out at sea. Out in his sea, there is pleasures and more pleasures. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are the pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. And hear this. Everything has to be twisted before it is of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages because nothing is naturally on our side. Now, I, I don't have the time to summarize the entire Bible, um, <laughs> but here's the reality of God's good and beautiful and created world enters into, what enters into the story is human rebellion. And, and the word for that is sin. And sin is a corruption. It's not just doing bad things. It's the corruption of the human heart and our inclination to define what is good and evil on our own terms and to reject God. No longer living in dependence on God has a fracture, it causes a fractured relationship with God, but it also fractures the relationships with one another. These things sort of have a ripple effect. 
And sin enters into the story, but fast forward, Jesus is the antidote to the sin in our lives. Amen? Amen. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is the one, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. Jesus takes the ultimate consequence of our sin, our rebellion, and the evil in this world, and he takes it upon himself. Even though he needed not to, he chose to because of his great love for us. And now that ultimate consequence of that human rebellion fell on him, it doesn't have to fall on you. All you have to do is one thing. Put your life and your trust and your faith in the saving God. That's it. And you can do that right now. No fanfare, no jumping up and down. Just make that decision. And you can be reconciled to God, right? You can experience peace and life the way God intended now and one day will permeate through all of creation. Now, we still, however, have to deal with the reality of the corruption called sin, Right? While our ultimate destinies are changed and we can experience God working in and through our lives now and we can have victory over the effects of sin, while we're in this mortal body that's wearing out, the effects of sin are still real. The effects of sin still affect the world around us. Now, one of the things about Adam and Eve right off the bat is they sin, they reject God, they blame each other, they blame God, they blame their circumstances. Personal responsibility, out the window which I find incredibly comforting and relatable. (laughs) Now, what we find is that corruption, although dealt with by Jesus and still affects us, it fractures human relationships. So we don't get to live into the beautiful picture of interdependence fully, and we work with Jesus to heal the broken parts of us that hurt other people. Now, here are two ways sin can affect human relationships. Are you ready for these? Number one, isolation. We learned this in the last couple years. Isolation isn't good for the human soul, right? Now, long before the last couple years started, and isolation was the remedy for so many things, apparently, um, isolation has always been a temptation and a trouble for humans, Right? And why? Because isolation says at its core that in order for me to stay safe, I need to move myself away from people from hurting me. Now, this is an error in relationship. It gets in the way of interdependence. There's another, um, it's, it's dangerous, another trap of isolation is this idea, this mindset that says, I can do it all by myself. Another one, I'm not worthy of community, or even darker and harder, I have nothing to offer. These are all symptoms of the brokenness that we call sin. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, there's isolation, there's also idolatry, right? And that idolatry is this idea that I actually need you to help form my identity, I don't know who I am apart from you needing me to, right? You get what I'm saying? Or objectification, I will use you up so that I feel good, even if I'm not aware of it. And last, idolatry can create this like misplaced sense of belonging. Now, I have struggled in my life with idolatry of other human beings and relationships, where I have thought too much of them or I needed them to need me. That's definitely been something I've struggled with. Every one of us, by the way, struggles with these two. 
But if I'm going to be real with all of you in this moment and actually practice what I'm talking about, my deeper struggle is this, it's isolation. I'm more of a lone wolf. Listen, I'm really happy to help you, but I struggle deeply with letting you help me. I even struggle with the idea that you might know that I need help with something. Even the perception of it, I loathe. (laughs) My friend Cliff sent me a text this weekend, and he said, how are you doing? When you get a text like that, you have two ways of responding. I'm good! Or honest. And maybe you are good, but I will tell you that my great struggle is I don't want to be a burden to you. I don't want to be a burden to my friend. So if you ask me how I'm doing, it's going to take a tremendous amount of work for me to process how I'm really doing and then actually tell you the truth. It's not because I'm a liar. It's definitely not that. Well, maybe, but you know what I'm saying. It's because I struggle with being vulnerable. I struggle with you thinking that I might need help. And so it's in those moments that I have an opportunity to overcome the brokenness of isolation, to act differently than I feel, to respond with honesty. See, I remember when someone pointed out to me that God becoming human in the person of Jesus subjected himself to the limitations of interdependence. Crazy thought. When God became Jesus, he intentionally subjected himself to needing to be cared for. Someone had to nurse him, Mary, (laughs) protect him, Right? He would get tired and need food and rest. We're talking about the God who created the universe. If he subjected himself to the need of other people, who am I to think I don't need other people? Right? I thought that self-reliance was a virtue, not a vice. But truth be told, isolation, self-reliance have become a self-protection mechanism for me to prevent someone from hurting me. Burn me once, She won't burn me twice. The long, slow, and honestly sometimes painful journey to interdependence has brought me closer to Jesus and it's begun to heal the parts of me that are broken. And if any of that is helpful for you, I encourage you to go on the journey too. Now, in order for us to be people who move away from the errors of isolation or of idolatry. We need to develop a new mindset and we need to develop a new practice. So in the next five minutes, let's cover both. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The word mindset can literally mean attitude and it's how we approach people cognitively and emotionally, right? And what follows and precedes the text in Philippians two is Paul's call to unity and humility, So here's some ways that we can shift a mindset, right? First, we change our mind and then it'll help us shape our actions. Number one, um, to believe that other people's differences bring texture and perspective to my life. Can you imagine in this two-party system of our political environment, if we actually believed that, that the differences of the people on the other side of the aisle actually could bring perspective and texture, that their differences doesn't just immediately equate to evil, wrong, and bad. It'd be an interesting way to live. (laughs) Second, diversity is good. Homogenizing humanity is bad and dangerous, although it's actually really comfortable. 
If you surround yourself only with people that look like you, act like you, think like you, read the same things you do, watch the same things you do, you know what will happen? Your ideas will be reinforced, even the bad ones. There's a danger in homogenizing humanity. It isn't healthy. Diversity, on the other hand, which opens the door for conflict, I get it, is good. Why? Because you help me see God in ways I cannot alone. It's perspective. You guys remember Keith Jenkins? He's one of my friends. Um, if you don't, Keith's a great guy. Him and I were walking through Nashville, Tennessee one time, and he bumped me, and he goes, Lesler, you're a big dude. I was like, well, that came out of nowhere, okay. He was like, you're tall, broad shoulders, and you're loud. And I was like, thanks for building me up. But it was perspective that I didn't have. Because growing up um, as an athlete, I played basketball through high school and college, I was always thought of myself as too small. Now, I'm almost six foot four. The average male in the world is five foot six, which means I'm almost a foot taller than the average person. But in my twisted perspective, I'm too small. Right? And if you know, you know. This is the sign when you get dunked on, somebody says, too small which I've been dunked on many times. So I needed him to point something out about me that I could not see about myself, right? All I've ever seen is the perspective, or at least for a long time, of what 6'4 looks like, right? But he was able to show me something that I couldn't see about myself. And in doing so, he's also able to help me see things about God in ways that I could not see alone. This is a mindset shift for us, right? Um, another one, you provide opportunities to serve you and show you the love of Jesus, right? Interdependence, you, I have a mindset that I wanna serve you and I wanna show you the love of Jesus. That's the attitude I have for you. You learn and grow from the experiences. I learn and grow from the experiences that you have that I do not have. In doing so, when I lean into your perspective, see, if you're five foot one, your vantage point of the world is vastly different from mine. I can assume what your vantage point is. I can guess what it is, but you know what would be better? If I asked you and if I listened. And I learned your perspective of seeing the world because it's different than mine. And all of that means we have to develop a mindset that says, I embrace the friction in our relationship because it gives me a chance to see my gaps of maturity and my opportunities for growth, not yours. <laughs> see, oftentimes when we are in friction in relationships, you know what we do? Ooh, that's how that person needs to grow. That's where they're wrong. But what if we embraced a mindset instead that said, I'm gonna see how their differences and the friction that we have actually challenges the things I believe and allows me to see the gaps in maturity and opportunities for growth. Okay, a couple practical ways we can do this and then we'll wrap our time up. We have a saying around here, we connect people to people. It's important. We actually believe that in human relationships, especially in a time where we're very falsely connected through technology, that real human connection makes a difference. We wanna design opportunities for you to set the table, but you have to take the risk to show up. Because there is no interdependence without trust, and there is no trust without vulnerability, and there is no vulnerability without risk, and risk is scary. Why? Because of our own experiences. Because we've been hurt before. And because of that, it often shapes the way we respond to certain situations. We put up walls and barriers. Some of those are good and healthy, by the way, but also some of them prevent us from experiencing connection. 
right? So it requires a level of risk to enter into interdependence. So let's start with some baby steps. Ask somebody out to coffee. If you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling like, maybe I have an established relationship with someone, but I want to actually share what's going on in my life, why don't you ask them to coffee? By the way, it doesn't have to be romantic. Maybe don't start there. Good idea. <laughs> if there's someone you trust and you're going through something hard, confide in them. Give them the opportunity to hear you and listen. Take the risk, right? Ask for prayer. That's hard. Not just generic, like, God, or say, hey, uh, Chrissy, these are my unspokens. Will you pray for those? No, like, give them something tangible and specific. Ask for prayer. Be real about it. Give an honest response to someone who asks. Practice honesty. Respond to my friend Cliff with what's real, not, it's great. No hiding and no shame. That's the security God wants for you. But in order to do that, there is such thing as safe and wise communication. There's such thing as oversharing. That's when you share too much about you. You're verbally processing. Maybe take it back a few notches. But then there's overexposing. It's when somebody shares something with you and you go tell other people what it is, right? And you're betraying their trust. You're exposing them um, when they were coming to you for confidence. Now, here's a couple practices we can do to foster and cultivate interdependence. Number one, be more curious than you are convinced, be more curious than you are convinced. Be kind, be curious, and listen. Jesus asked great questions. What do you want me to do for you? That was a question Jesus asked a lot. Jesus listened to what people had to say, not just their words, but deeper than that. I think it's a good idea to be like Jesus, right? <laughs> Pay attention. What do you notice? Ask questions. What brings somebody alive? Ask them that question. Ask them how they feel. Occasionally stretch yourself out of the confines of safe. <laughs> Ask help and input from other people. Share life. You know, Acts 2.42, this like, idea in the New Testament about how the church shared life together, it actually was revolutionary because people didn't really do that across dividing walls of hostility and barriers, but they did and it changed the world. Because it's wild what happens when you come together and you share your stuff, when you provide emotional support and spiritual encouragement for other people. Serve. We had 400 kids show up here last Sunday. Not enough adults. <laughs> this isn't to shame anybody, but there's this truth that a few significant adult relationships with a child will change the trajectory of their life. It fosters interdependence. Last and, and not least, but honor the differences and honor the omago day, the image of God in other people. Learn how to find how God is on display in all people. Okay, this is the time when we're done. And we can take a big, deep breath. Very practical stuff. Hope you took notes, wrote some things down. I would challenge you to practice maybe just one of these this week. But um, this is the point in our service where we pray a prayer of blessing over you. So if you would want to stand, I would love to pray a benediction over you. Um, and if you're open to receiving that, you just simply have to open your hands. <clears throat> May you be a people who live into the truth that they are fully dependent 
on God. May you be a people who live into the truth that you are a reflection of the image of God to the world around you. May you be a people who live interdependent upon one another. May you be a people who travel that road with curiosity, with kindness, with gentleness, and with courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.